0: Enacted in 2021, the Environment Act creates a new framework for environmental protection in the United Kingdom. The Act gives the government authority to set binding targets for water quality, air quality, biodiversity, and waste reduction, filling the gap created when the UK left the European Union. Among its requirements related to water quality is the call for England's water companies to monitor water quality upstream and downstream of nearly 20,000 combined sewer overflows and effluent discharge sites and make the data available to the public. CSOs are just part of the country's sewer discharge dilemma, but the undertaking is immense, and while the water companies await the EA's technical guidance on how to meet the new requirements, it's evident that they will need simple and affordable water monitoring solutions and a thorough, Understanding of how to use and share the data they produce. Hi everyone, welcome to Aquapod where we share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor, content manager with InSitu.
1: And I'm Carrie Caslow, InSitu's application development manager for surface water.
0: Today, we're pleased to have two guests from across the pond. Kaylee Smith is our regional sales manager in the UK, and David Claridge is business development manager for water and wastewater and environmental monitoring solutions. So Kaylee and David have joined us to talk about the UK's 2021 Environment Act, specifically the push to improve the region's water quality through a dramatic expansion of stormwater overflow monitoring. If implemented a requirement for upstream and downstream monitoring of thousands of stormwater overflows could provide a wealth of real-time water-to-quality data that could be used in the effort to reduce spills of polluted water. So, David, we have a lot to dive into here, but um, before we talk about the legislation and potential monitoring solutions, uh, please tell us just a little bit about yourself and EMS.
2: Um, EMS is uh, Environmental Monitoring Solutions, which is part of a group of companies called Curatera. This group of companies are all focused on different aspects of environmental protection or monitoring. Uh, EMS themselves have a number of divisions within it. Uh, Industrial Water Division, which is the one I head up, an Air Monitoring Division, a Sewer Survey uh, Division for working with the water companies, a Smart Sewer Division, which uses um, AI and fuzzy logic to control sewer networks or uh, treatment Um, for peer removal and so on, an innovations team and also an advisory team that work on consent discharge permits and so on. Myself, I've worked in many aspects of the water industry within the UK for the last 35 plus years. Um, Look, I've designed such schemes, CSOs, I've uh, instrumented um, both clean and dirty water uh, treatment works and works in the industrial side as well on monitoring systems for many years.
0: Great, great. And Kaylee, tell us a little bit about your role at Institute.
3: Uh Yeah, so um, I've been working for Institute now for nearly nineteen years. Um, basically, I'm responsible for expansion across the north of the UK, including Scotland. Um, so I, I just help my customers um, devise monitoring solutions for any problems that they might have.
0: Great. Well, this will be a fun conversation, a lot to get to here. So let's start. David, let me go back to you. And maybe since I know that you have a, a great deal of familiarity with the Environment Act, um, can you just tell us uh, a little bit uh, about it and sort of outline the problem for us and w- tell us what the Environment Act seeks to achieve?
2: Yep, certainly. Until recently, obviously, the UK was part of the European uh, Union and we were governed by the European environmental rules and regulations and laws. After Brexit, however, we were losing those and we needed something to fill that gap uh, and then provide protection for the, the environmental industry uh, and, and the environment itself. So this act is is aimed to fill that space and provide guidance and uh, requirements for the industry as a whole, particularly the water company industry, the municipal industry, as you'd call it in this states. In
1: so David, can you tell us a little bit about the similarities and differences between the UK Environment Act and the EU um, environmental regulations that were currently in place?
2: There's some different stages here. This act is really guidance of what the government wants the water companies to achieve in terms of improving discharges to the environment Um, and initially in monitoring. So we need to monitor what we're doing before we know what we need to do. There are some technical guidelines to come out on the back of this, but they haven't been launched as yet. In reality, they should be launched at the same time. So the water companies at the moment are having to work towards goal without knowing exactly how they are expected to achieve it. So they're in the stage now where they're looking at a sort of global aspect of what they need to do and how much that's going to cost and different ways of doing it and the impact on the costs for that. So the technical guidance is is due out, uh, whether it'll be out this year, I doubt it, but probably next year. And there'll be some iterations of that moving on as well.
3: It's not just surface water. Though we're looking at there will be coastal water and groundwater applications uh, where this monitoring will need to be conducted.
1: So, Kaylee, this does sound like it's a really big task for you know the UK to take on. So, practically speaking, do you think that this is possible?
3: Uh, it is possible, but you will need collaboration from, you know, a number of different agencies, um, manufacturers, and contractors. Um, there are thousands of CSOs in the UK. Um, some of them are obviously already being monitored. I mean, I think the last time I checked, the, the figures were saying, you know, up to thirty-two thousand or more. Um and you know you've got upstream and downstream monitors on surface water. Um how that transposes into groundwater, I don't know, but but there there, there is a requirement to monitor there too. Um it, it also depends on the kind of practicalities of the monitoring, where you know how how you're going to implement that. Are you going to put a sand into the water? Are you going to use a kiosk? Is it wet chemistry analysers? I I don't think they're going to go down that route, but, you know, these are all questions. So,
0: David, yeah, it would cost billions, right, to actually replace the infrastructure.
2: That's right. There's some estimates, uh, very broad estimates, but um, you've got two options. We have an old Victorian network of sewers in the UK, which are combined sewers. So you've got the choice of either replacing with separate sewers or providing storage within the system to allow for the storms. And there are some estimates. Um, And if we look at the storage estimates, we're looking at between 120 and 190 billion pounds. And if we're looking at separation of the systems, bear in mind this will have an impact on roads, other services such as telecoms and that type of thing as well, uh, and power. The estimates are between 338 and 593 billion pounds. So all we want to do is look at what impact the CSOs are having on the environment, because it's not only CSOs that are having an impact. Agriculture has a big impact as well. So once we can isolate the impact from the water companies, we can try and target those areas which are causing issues. Because in some cases, a discharge from a sewer network during the storm condition can actually improve the river. So we have to be careful where we put the money that we
3: do have to tackle this problem. I also think there needs to be an education, um, a wider education for the general public. And I know a lot of um, a lot of companies do it, but you know, part of this problem as well is that uh, you know the, the the sewage system is antiquated; um, it's not designed for the amount of people. Um, that we have, but it's also not designed for a lot of things that we're flushing. So, you know, wet wipes. Uh, and even if the manufacturer says they're safe to flush, they're probably not safe to flush in large quantities. Um, you know, fats and oils, all of these are being discharged into the sewers and adding to the problem. So there are things that we can do as well.
1: So is the yes. monitoring going to fall on the responsibility of the water companies or who who is who all is going to be monitoring um the water quality through this whole whole project?
2: The responsibility in association with CSOs and wastewater treatment plant outlets is with the water companies. Beyond that, um, it, it's a little bit of a gray area because if it's agricultural, is it the farmers? Is it the agricultural industry as a whole? Is it the environment agency? There's a little bit of um, gray area uh, concerning that.
3: And then the data, obviously, that, that needs to go back to the Environment Agency, I'm presuming. But he, yeah, so will, will there be a, a, new, a new department there to look at all this data? Because it's a lot of data. <laughs> and,
1: well, that that brings up a really good point for the both of you to kind of discuss. So what are some of the challenges for a monitoring program of this size related to things like the massive amounts of data that are going to be coming in, the cost, the setup and the manpower can you speak to some of those things?
2: I think there's, there's two areas on this. You, you've got to consider how you do it and what you do with it, uh, as, as you've indicated there. So how you do it is the number of locations, the access to those locations, is there power in those locations, vandalism, um, changing river levels uh, can cause safety issues. Uh, all this type of thing will have an impact on on how we do it. Then what do we do with the data? The data is supposed to go into the public domain as well. So the water companies are supposed to publish it so anybody can view this data. Um, But it has to be in a format that people will understand. So somebody's got to do something with that data to make it legible for the general public. And then it's got to be used, structured in such a way that it can be used statistically to determine what's happening when... And what impact that is happening on the receiving watercourses, and whether the impact is is detrimental or not to the, to the receiving watercourse, because um, there's certain provisions in the Environment Act that if you're not causing any issues in the watercourse, you don't need to do anything. So we can allow the discharges, but it can also then be used to isolate um, the impacts of the water from the water companies from other. Um, contributors to the problem such as agricultural, industrial discharges and so on and then we can push some owners back on those other industries uh, to sort sort their problems out
0: Well these water companies are collecting data now, correct so could it be a simple expansion of what they're already doing when you're talking about how they manage and share the data or is it going to have to be a different
3: um, process there isn't a lot of data widely available from water companies at the moment about the river water quality. Um, and you are, so, you know, they will have some existing network in which they could expand, but it, it, again, it depends on what, what they're using and whether it makes sense for them to, um, expands that across the network because it could be like that the, the system they have in place at the moment requires a lot of maintenance or it's not getting on so well. So they might think, actually, let's go back to the drawing board uh, with something else. Um, but, the, you know, there are there are a growing number of kind of action groups who are publishing data but <laughs> um, uh, in in around like their local watercourses. They're, they're obtaining data and putting it up on their website.
2: I've spent a lot of time working with the water companies um, on their treatment works and CSOs. And what you find is the effluent treatment plants, wastewater treatment plant discharge will be monitored because it's regulated at the moment. So there'll be data on the discharges from the sewage works. In terms of the CSOs, the data available is event data. So is it spilling and how long for? And generally, it's as simple as that. So it hasn't got any quality data or even quantity data. It's just it's spilling, but you don't know how how much by. So this Act actually brings in the requirement to monitor upstream and downstream. So it's a, a huge increase in the amount of monitoring. The other aspect of it as well from the water companies is that most of their data that they have now actually goes into their Networks by their telemetry system, which they are very, very protective over. So they then have to, we either have to have this data autonomous from their normal data or into their system and then out again in a format that A, protects them, that there's, there's no way of people getting into their control systems and playing around with treatment works and that type of thing, um, and B, can be got out into a format that everybody else can read and use.
1: So all of the monitoring that you're talking about then is supposed to be continuous monitoring. It's not just people going out during an event and, you know, putting a son in the water and collecting a spot sample. It's all real time, what you're looking
2: for. Real time or near real time.
1: Yeah. Yes. Excellent. So it, that brings a question up. Then, what are the some of the ways that SONs are typically deployed in your area? I know Kaylee, you mentioned kiosk systems. Can you tell us maybe a little bit more about that and some of the other ways that um, monitors are deployed?
3: Okay, yeah. So you can um, deploy the monitors direct into streams and rivers using some deployment tubes, or I think yeah, one one of the methods mentioned is is putting a SON in a kiosk in a flow cell. Um, which means you have to have a pump, um, a peristaltic pump, which pulls the water out of the water course into the kiosk. So then you need to power the pump. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, they require things like solar panels and, and whatnot. Whereas, you know, if you just put the sun straight into the water course and have your telemetry system alongside that, if it's a self-powered system, like, like VLink, for instance, um, you don't need any of that extra stuff. You don't need the the cyber amount of permissions that you would um, I know um David you've you've sold the kiosk solutions before haven't you
2: yeah I've designed and uh, sold um, pumped systems for usually the outlet of the uh, uh, sewage works um, which are a little bit different and they you haven't got the issues in terms of access and there's usually power available but they're still expensive and there's still high maintenance. And when you start looking at the electrical regulations within the water industry within the UK, it might not just be a case of putting a pump inside with a flow cell. You might have to have uh, heaters in there. You'll have to have some sort of telemetry alarm system in there and this type of thing as well. So it it's not a simple case of a kiosk.
1: So what's an alternative solution then to having the kiosk? Because that does sound pretty complicated.
3: Just putting the sun directly into the water course in a deployment tube, um, it's much simpler. Um, you'll also get better readings for things like dissolved oxygen and turbidity because peristaltic pumps, because of the motion of the pump, they can degas the sample. Um, and then turbidity if your flow cell orientation is directly up, like it usually is in a kiosk, um, that can actually kind of promote air bubble formation around the sensors. So turbidity in a flow cell traditionally has not been a very good measurement. Um, Whereas if uh, you have the flow cell at an angle, like on our aquatrols, you actually, yeah, you don't get that same air bubble formation. So it's more reliable in that sense.
1: Those are really good points. Those are nice pros and cons between the two different deployment methods. So it sounds like there's, reasons why you might choose one over the other, and maybe you can explain that a little bit?
2: From my point of view, looking at the installation, one of the main reasons you may want to go down the kiosk route is for safety. If, for example, the access to the course is very difficult, um, it's sometimes easy just to try and get a sample out of it. Um, That that would be the main issue for me. That's few and far between.
3: For the sun, obviously, it's going to be cheaper to deploy if you just have the sun on its own. Um, if you've got, you know, a, a telemetry system on there like ViewLink, which is self-powered, then you don't need solar panels or any other extra power requirements. And then the maintenance on it is going to be lower because, you know, you're going to get things like like films and slimes building up on the smaller dam. It's peristaltic pump tubing. So you're going to have to go out there to make sure that um, that's not clogged, whereas the water's going to be free flowing through the sun. So obviously you're going to need to, you know, you, you do need to go out and inspect it periodically, but you just don't need to go there as much.
2: I did find on pumped kiosk systems that biological growth within the tubing could be a huge problem in some cases.
3: It could be more prone, obviously, block just general blockages anyway, yep. um, from from the the water course because that you know they're quite often large particles going through there.
1: So you mentioned dissolved oxygen and turbidity. Are those some of the baseline parameters that have already been monitored? And what other parameters are you currently using? And where do you see? Um, monitoring going in the future? Like, are there any additional parameters that you're looking at adding to these systems or are there any dream sensors that you wish you could have?
2: Total P. It's the dream. If you can have a total P sensor, uh, an in-situ one, then uh, you've you've got the market. Um, One thing within the Environment Act, uh, which people have to think about for the future the secretary of state within the government can, at any time for any reason, ask for additional parameters to be included. And um, if somebody did come up with a total P sensor, then that will be included. I feel.
0: And
3: for those who don't know, total P.
2: Total phosphate
3: yeah that's I think that's big on uh, everyone's wish list. yeah um and then the the standard parameters that are currently requested are ammonia, um pH, temperature, dissolved oxygen, turbidity, conductivity, I believe is on there. Um, as well. So, and these tend to be the kind of standard big parameters all our water companies are looking for in uh, a lot of their environmental monitoring.
0: So that's a lot to cover, and the water companies, it sounds like the onus will largely be on them, and yet they don't yet have the standards or the technical guidance quite yet to understand what they have to do, but they're in a position where it sounds like they need to prepare a plan and prepare to take action. How would you anticipate or what recommendations might you have for those that are facing this requirement? You know, thousands and thousands of monitoring installations to understand what they need and requisition it.
2: I think because of the scale of the task, they've got to keep it as simple as possible for a number of reasons. One is the cost. Um, another one is the mechanics of actually getting companies on board to do the work because. It's going to be a lot of work in a short period of time so they've got to keep it as simple and quick as possible and what they've got to do is when they're making their submissions to the regulator in terms of the money that they're going to do in the plans that they're going to roll out they've got to try and get it into as simple a format as possible uh, for those reasons i've just mentioned that would be my approach you are yeah. going to have odd occasions where you're going to have to do something more complex, so you have a provision for those occasional cases. But as a whole, keep it simple.
3: Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, you know, there were lots of there are lots of other parameters that you could potentially monitor that might give you useful information. But if you can you know, if you can keep what you're monitoring to a minimum and still get the same result, you know, and still have data that's just as valuable. Um, I, I don't see a point in spending extra money because that, you know, if you've got to roll that out to thousands of locations, um, I, I think there's a lot of merit in doing some technology trials right now and just seeing what works. Um, it could be that the systems that some of the water companies have been using previously, you know, that are they are... Too expensive to roll out on a larger scale, um, so now's the time really for them to be doing some fact finding and research, um, trying technologies alongside each other.
2: They also need to heavily consider the maintenance impacts because yep. they haven't got the staff the maintenance now that they should be doing now. Um, so they need to keep keep the maintenance as simple as possible as well.
3: Because if you know if you if you're looking at ammonia for a sun. Um, you know that needs monthly calibrations at a minimum certainly on ours there are other you know other devices which need calibration more frequently than that so you know they need to be thinking they need to be out on site at least monthly maintaining this equipment Um, that's if they want the data to mean anything (laughs) because it could you you know the the danger is if you make it too complicated um, but the the Kind of enforcement isn't there, you know, it could end up just being a box ticking exercise. And as long as they've got monitors in place, then, you know, people might not necessarily care so much about what's coming off them.
2: Um, well, with the data going into the public domain, this will become more of an issue as yep. well because people will look at it and yep. will monitor it. There's a, a network of rivers trusts in the UK who, um, um, getting quite a loud voice in terms of preserving rivers and improving rivers and they will be looking at the data continually.
3: Definitely. And there are, there are you know, there are other other action groups who so say you've got Surfers Against Sewage Pollution, um, an organisation called Windrush Against Sewage Pollution and they're all doing their own monitoring. They're buying their own kit um, and they have websites where they publicise the data. Uh, for anyone to look at Uh, and so you know and if they're going out and maintaining their own kit then the water company's data if they've got monitors in the same areas that needs to match up to that really um, in some way and and they're also still going to need to do lab samples Um, doesn't matter what kind of monitors you're using you need that backup data. You need that reference to protect the integrity of your data. Uh, we can't forget about that. So that's something that they're going to have to do and discuss with the the labs as well to make sure that that's meaningful.
1: So Kaylee, with uh, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about today, um, it sounds like the in-situ monitoring equipment might be a pretty feasible solution. So can you talk about what the in-situ technology is a little bit and what a deployment might look like?
3: Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, in situ, really, they have, we have a plug and play system for this um, using um, Aquatrol sons with um, view link telemetry. Uh, And obviously you have a cable between the sond and the telemetry device. Um, The sond will need to be deployed in the watercourse, usually in a stainless steel deployment tube, which can be, you know, people, I know EMS deploy a lot of our sons and they get them fabricated. Uh, these deployment tubes. Now, depending on the length of the deployment tube, the telemetry system could actually sit out of the water at the top of that deployment tube. Um, and obviously, it depends on the distance between the top of the bank to um, where you're going to deploy it, as to what would make sense for that. Because if you do have difficulty accessing the water course, then you know maybe you do want to go down a kiosk route. And our our products can be deployed in a kiosk as well. Um, and would require less power than some of the current solutions um, because you'd still have your view link in there which will power the sun so you just need to power the pump essentially uh, from that and obviously potentially have a heater in there too depending on on the environment that you're in. Um, I mean a a really simple deployment some people just have a post at the side of the river which they'll put the view link on and have the the sand in the watercourse in a cage. There are lots of ways you can do it. It depends on how kind of slick or professional you want to be, or, you know, the time and the budget. The budget is what it comes down to really. Um, you know, if you want it professionally deployed, people like I say, people like EMS, they'll get the sun deployment tubes. Now, Carrie
0: has um, spent a lot of time standing in rivers deploying <laughs> <songs> <laughs> and telemetry. She knows that uh, each each site is different, isn't that right?
1: <laughs> you're hundred percent correct and it, yeah, I just published some uh, blogs on our webpage talking about some of the different deployments that I've done with in situ equipment. and yeah, it it really depends on the site that you're working with and your budget and your creativity for sure. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely and then in the groundwater applications again it's very simple to deploy the um view link with aquatrol just go yeah aquatrol at the bottom ViewLink sits at the top of the well hangs in coastal deployments you can put them on buoys um again very simple be, I, I think the coastal deployments are very difficult to do with a kiosk and you know if it's saltwater as well you've got to think about um um saline deposits potentially in the tubes that could that could cause some issues
1: so kaylee for people that are kind of new to the monitoring game um do you ever help train people on how to use in equipment so if, if somebody does purchase from us they do they have a resource to reach out to for for some guidance on how to use it
3: yeah, the, the, yeah, there there are a whole host of different ways that we can train people through online courses, um, visits at our own facilities. Um, we also have, you know, we've got extensive resources within in situ our application development managers, such as you, Kerry. Um, uh, are uh, you know they're always available to help. We do ongoing training with our, our partners, such as EMS. So we've got some of that going on next week, which also involves uh, you, you, Kerry. Um but yeah, you, you know, in, in a lot of instances, the the training we provide is usually free as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, so yeah, come and talk to us.
0: And with ViewLink Telemetry, where is that data transmitting to? Where is that data going?
3: Um, so it's completely flexible. It can, you know, if 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 you don't want your data to go to a third party, it can go directly into your own FTP or database, or you can use Hydroview, which is our online platform. Again, completely flexible. Uh, once it's in HydraView, um, you can have public links so people can view the data without actually having full access to it. They can't do anything to it. So you could have you know, public links on your website to the data, or that could be interrogated via an API, um, and then you can do what you want with the data through that. Um, which would give you, um, yeah, a little bit, um, a little bit more flexibility in the way that it was displayed. So many of our customers they use the API um, because then they still get the the, the benefits of Hydroview as well. You know they can go in and change things online or login intervals. Um, some of our customers, obviously are just going to be using the alarms, so they just they just want a text message or a, an email or a phone call to alert them when the parameter has exceeded the um, the stated threshold.
1: So it sounds like the API feature might be something very useful in this case since um it sounds like the desire is really to port all of the information from across the entire um, UK into a single database, so that that might be something very useful
3: right i yeah, i think so yeah um definitely i mean i've i've heard people have ideas as well Is they want the they want the data and then they they want to be able to use it to to have graphics on their website which will you know show a dirty river or a clean river um depending on what the the parameters are and they can do that through using software from our api so
1: so Kaylee, you also talked a little bit about um, alarms there and the the ability to set those up and send a text message or, or an email or something like that. Um, can you and David both talk about some
3: situations where you feel like alarms might be useful in these cases? The guidance doesn't state what the river water quality should be. It's just that there shouldn't be, you know, a negative ecological influence or impact. So that means that you're going to need to use... The data that you've got coming in upstream, Um, and you know you're not going to want that to you know certain you know you don't want the ammonia to increase downstream after and you know what after a a, sewer overflow incident it it probably is but if 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 that if that's important to you then you you set an alarm um, you know stating that if it rises by so much you get that alert so then you can go out there. Um, and mitigate if, if, if possible.
2: There's a move to try and make uh, some watercourses inland bathing areas. So, a typical uh, instance for the alarm would be if you have a discharge and the water quality on the downstream side of that discharge has got to a certain point on the premises you're measuring, you send out an alarm to basically say it's not a good time to go swimming. um and you can either, you can have that either as a, an alert on a website or you can have it, um, potentially, you can even, we're, we're using SONS at the moment um, and tying them up through our own EDAS system, uh, Environmental Data Acquisition System, to do, to do a traffic light system. So red, don't go in. and uh, if you want to risk it, and green's okay. Um, so there's a variety of things you can do there.
1: So that's the big uh, public interest component that you've been talking to has been for these recreational areas and the safety of, of people going into yeah. those waters. Yeah. So is there going to be um, like a stoplight type indicator at these recreational areas for people to see or is there just going to be like a website link that people will have to go to when they arrive to check out the quality?
2: I think there'll be a website um, because more infrastructure there again you've got You've got the public in the area it could get damaged. Um, it's maintaining it and that sort of thing as well. So, my view is it would be a website.
3: Yeah. So, I think currently less than 80% of the UK's rivers are at bathing water standard. So.
2: Something like that, yeah.
3: And
1: is that that standard for just bacteria or is it algae or what all is encompassed in that bathing standard, I guess?
2: It's predominantly based on ammonia. Um, uh, as an indicator of what's going wrong there um, obviously you have situations we've had some situations recently where we've had huge increases in um, blue green algae growth um, so that's phosphate coming into it, nitrogen so there's other considerations there in the future but on running water courses it's generally ammonia that's uh, an indicator
3: yeah obviously blue green algae sensors can be added to kind of the, your standard Aquatrol system. So that's probably as close to phosphate as we can get at the
0: moment. Well, we fleshed out the, the issue and possible solutions for um, what will be required through the Environment Act in the UK. But talk a little bit about, you know, for people looking in, what are the potential ramifications for people outside the UK? I mean, we're all looking at uh, more stresses on the environment, on the infrastructure due to climate change, greater storm surges, all of that. What should, what notes should people be taking as we see what's going to be unfolding in the UK?
2: I I personally think that you've got any situation where you've either got an aging sewer network that can't cope with what's going on at the moment, um, or you have conditions where you watercourses aren't as you would like, but you need to find out how to improve them. The sort of approach we're looking at here could be utilised to help in either of those situations. And from that, you can then determine where the money that you have got is going to be best spent to improve the environment. That's- and you see some of the some of the pictures of rivers in, you know, the Far East, full of plastics and things like that. But what else is in there? And you can remove the, the, the plastic relatively easily. Um, needs a bit of investment, a bit of time, but you, that, that's an easy thing to remove. But what else is in there? They haven't got any idea. So, you know, if you're looking to clean up rivers in in that sort of state, it could be used there
0: mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And that brings us back to the data, right? You monitor, you start to begin to understand what is in the water, you get that data, and what are you going to do with it? Talk a little bit about the Office for Environmental Protection, the OEP, right? What, is, what do we know about the accountability uh, so far? Um, and what do you think t- will be required to really give teeth to this?
2: uh, This is a relatively new office, so we're not really sure how it's going to operate and what impact it's going to have. I mean, traditionally, we've had the Environment Agency as the regulator for any discharges to the environment, whether that's water discharges or discharges into the air, your gases from stacks and and so on. Their funding has changed. They now have to try and self-fund so they're not getting the funding from the government. They can't monitor as they used to or as everybody would like. And in that sense, they are tending to lose their teeth um, in prosecuting or being able to gather the data to prosecute companies. There's been some big prosecutions of water companies recently, but it's taken a lot to get the data to do that. um, Two water companies in particular but um, my hope is that it will provide an independent, additional regulator who will really monitor what's going on, and I don't mean that in terms of you know uh, bashing the water companies over the head with a, a stick type of thing. It, it, I would like to see it so that it. Um, highlights where the problems are, not just in the water industry, but other industries as well. We, we've got one river, in particular, in it's one of the most beautiful rivers you'll ever see, which is impacted by chicken farms. Um, so it needs highlighting and then something needs to be done about it. So I just hope that they, they've got the, the clout to actually do that and make other industries as well as the water industry, um, clean up their act. Time will tell.
1: <laughs>
0: Time will tell. Do you,
1: yeah. Do you think that this group might also um, help develop like standard operating procedures for how this monitoring equipment should be used so that the data is kind of consistent to, no matter which group is doing the monitoring?
2: I think it'll probably provide guidelines. Uh, this is a sort of little bit of a tricky area. I think the water companies or any other industry should be allowed to um, have some flexibility in what they do to allow for different situations and, uh, and different impacts that they're causing. But there should be a minimum guidance, and I hope that minimum guidance is clear uh, from them. I hope they do produce that.
0: Well, David, we started this interview with you telling us just a little bit about EMS. Now that we've talked more about the issue, let's come back around to that and we look at the whole puzzle, right? The, the situation on the ground, the monitoring that needs to be done, the data that needs to be managed and used properly, and then the mitigation piece. What role does EMS play in each of those areas?
2: Well, there's a couple of areas that we can actually assist in this. I mean, Firstly, uh, we can deploy uh, the, measure, the, the devices that need deploying, whichever route you go in. So if it's the uh, application suns directly into the water, we can do that. And we can do the maintenance on those as well. Uh, we can do kiosks as well. We can do pump systems. Um, so we can provide those. The The, the other aspect is, is a larger... Um, aspect within the water industry. So uh, earlier on, I said about the two potential physical solutions. One is separate the systems and the other is to provide storage. Now, if you're looking at providing storage, you can do that in two ways. You can build big, expensive concrete tanks below ground, or you can manage your sewer network to... um, capitalize on the storage you have within the system that isn't necessarily utilized during a storm condition. Um, and the way of doing that, we within our smart sewer division, we have um, an AI system which uses fuzzy logic and level sensors within the sewer network and controls the system of gates, pen stocks within the system. And they, this system can be set up to reduce spills or stop spills in certain places and cause spills in other places, but basically utilizes the available storage within the network and manages the flow through that network better to reduce spills or hold back the first and second flushes. So when you do spill, you spill relatively clean water. Um, It can also be used for blockage detection and flushing as well within the network during low flow times. So you you remove the potential issues that may help cause an overflow as well. So there's a few things there as well. Um, The other aspect as well is to reduce the flows going into our combined systems. So that's making sure the surface water doesn't get into them, which is the suds schemes. And this AI system um, can also be used it's called Centure, it can also be used on SUD schemes to control the discharges from SUD schemes. So there's a number of areas we can assist there.
1: One of the things that folks in the US have been doing with um, this with these sound monitoring technologies and, and the sensors that are deployed on them is um, developing surrogate relationships. So using things like turbidity and discharge that you're talking about, um, to correlate those things to something like E. coli or um total suspended solids and and things like this. Um, Is that something that you guys have considered doing as well as developing those kind of uh, load
2: models? This type of solution has been talked about quite a bit over the years. Um, The main issue I feel is that every network is different. So quite often you have to tailor the inferences um, from what you're measuring to what you want to predict. Using test work as well for the particular sites. It's something our innovations team, uh, because we work with um, universities and uh, government bodies and uh, and institutes that provide grants for research and so on. So we work with groups like that, and it's something that um, is always being discussed and and looked at. It's it's getting that one-off. Uh, solution that you can deploy everywhere quickly. It's back to this keeping it simple, keeping it cheap. Um, We do a similar thing using the AI fuzzy logic for P uh, removal control, using turbidity as a surrogate for phosphate. Um, But there is a smaller scale, but there is um, a period of sampling required at the front end just to to hone it in and, and make sure it fits for that particular site, but it's certainly a potential solution.
1: I, I really like that point that um, not every site is is the same, so it's monitoring equipment and models and these kind of things are not one size fits all. I think that's a very good point.
0: So, I'd like to hear from both of you what you see as um, next steps.
2: I think, from my point of view, the, the what the water companies are working on now in producing their costings and their plans for the work and the timescales. Um, once those have been uh, put to off what or well, the other regulators that are involved and the work programme is determined, they just need to approach it in a realistic manner and also include the manufacturers and the installers in their decision-making and planning.
3: Kaylee. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. again, I, I do think they need to do some quite extensive technology trials. Um, and, you know, they need that technical guidance to come out um, for the Environment Act as well, because we're still still waiting for that. And that's that's going to tell you what the Environment Agency would prefer you do. And then, you know, they need to decide what's practical. Um what you know what costs make sense and which ones don't um so yeah they did and there needs you know there needs to be quite a long period of consultation as david said um involving the manufacturers and the contractors because inevitably they're not going to be deploying this equipment themselves in those kind of quantities um so you know they need to find the right people to work with
2: Too often in the past we've had situations where tenders have gone out and they'll it'll come out as we want eleven thousand of these installed within a three week period. (laughs) How are you going to get eleven thousand of those devices delivered at once? And there's no way on earth that you'll install it within twelve months. Never mind three weeks, type of thing. So there's got to be some sensibility about um, the approach as well. I just hope that. All the different parties involved with this come together because the act is aimed at improving the environment, which is important. And I hope that everybody just comes together and works together to make sure it happens.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it can't be—you know—it's not just going to be—it's not just one company that can that can help solve all this. So we do we do all need to come together. Um, to help with this, and it's critical to solve. So,
0: good yes, yeah. Well, David, Kaylee, thank you so much for joining us today on Aquapod to talk us through this. Um, very useful information, and and just really interesting to hear, especially from each of your differing perspectives. So, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you. This is Aquapod, brought to you by InSitu. You can find more episodes and subscribe to the podcast on our website, insitu.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please listen, share, and help us spread the word. Aquapod is produced by Helen Taylor and Carrie Kasla with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and I-25 Productions. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field. Until then, take care out there.